0: If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Uh, In Eastertide, we continue our uh, study of select passages in the Acts of the Apostles. And today, we come to uh, a passage that is no doubt familiar to many of us the conversion of Saul in Acts 9 1 to 19. I'm just going to read this entire passage um, and then. Uh, make a few observations about it. So Acts 9, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. By which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. All men are like grass, and all their glory as the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, this is my last sermon in this pulpit. Um, I'm experiencing a lot of lasts uh, over the last several weeks. We're moving to Oklahoma, if you didn't know that. Um, and uh, it's sad. <laughs> it's uh, bittersweet uh, thinking about uh, leaving friends and, and a place that we love. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, I had my last day of lecturing at Anderson University on Wednesday and it's, it's, it's kind of sobering to, to realize that a lot of these goodbyes that we'll be saying um, over the next couple of months um, may be for the rest of our lives. I mean, it's, it's a sobering reminder that, you know, we, we move on and we drift apart and we may never see each other again. I know that's kind of a sad thing to say hopefully we'll see some of you again. Um, But I was having lunch with a friend a couple weeks ago, a pastor friend in Anderson, uh, who was recounting a similar story that he um, he had experienced in his own life. He had a friend from college, I think they were getting, I think it was in college, and they were getting ready to graduate and move on and, um, you know, go their separate ways. It wasn't someone that he knew terribly well, but someone he had kind of gotten to know at the very end of his college career. Um, And they were having they were having a meal together one last time, before they were preparing preparing to move, and um, they they sort of had this 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 epiphany that this was probably be the last time that they ever saw each other. I mean, unless God you know brought them back together, in His providence. But his his friend said to him in that moment, "Have a good journey." And my my friend said that that's always stuck with him. Uh, 20 years later, just that idea of just how 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 powerful that that image is. That we'll, we we each will journey on. Um, God God is taking us along our distinct paths, and it's a journey ultimately for believers that ends in the same destination. I, I've sometimes joked with some of my students as I'm saying goodbye. Um, I know this is kind of. Uh, probably not the best thing to say, but I've been saying, well, see you in heaven. <laughs> you know, uh, and I'm, you know, kidding about that somewhat. But but of course, in a sense, that's true, right? Even if we journey on and we don't see each other again in this life, we will in the next. But that notion of a journey, uh, I think, is, is a especially powerful one. The Christian life is a journey where we are pilgrims on the way. Uh, we We are headed to... Uh, The Celestial City, as we think about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that beautiful allegory of the Christian life, that the Christian life is a journey. It's taking us along a way, a path, a road. I think that's what this text before us is about as well. We have this dramatic beginning of a journey that the Apostle Paul sets out on as he encounters the risen Christ. And I think if I were to summarize what I, at least what I want to draw out of this text for us today, it would be simply this, that the Christian life is a journey illuminated by the light of Christ and directed by his voice. I think that's what this text teaches us. The Christian life is a journey illuminated by the light of Christ and directed by his voice. And so I want to focus on uh, three simple words three common nouns that emerge out of this text that will guide our own journey through this text. The way, the light, and the voice. So first, the way. We just begin reading in uh, verse one, we read there, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Just previous to this was uh, the proto-martyr, the first martyr, Stephen. And we read at the end of chapter 8 that um, Paul himself, um, or at the end of chapter 7 rather, um, that Paul himself was standing there approving of the execution of, of Stephen. That's, that's Acts 8 uh, verse 1. Uh, so that Saul um, was, was sort of inspired by the shedding of Stephen's blood to seek out even more victims. Uh, so we can, we can imagine... Um, what's being said here uh, breathing threats and murder this is not a good guy, right? I think it's sometimes difficult for us to fully comprehend uh, the evil that it it takes to do something like this to seek out people not not just uh, if they happen to be arrested for disturbing the peace but to actively seek out Christians in order to murder them that's the kind of person we're dealing with here So Saul seeks out uh, letters from the high priest so that he would go into the synagogues at Damascus uh, north in Syria, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That is such a remarkable way of describing uh, this newly emerging Christian faith, to refer to it as the way. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I've always been struck by that, that. that Luke in in the book of Acts refers to uh, the Christian faith as the way. It's used five different times in uh, the book of Acts in just the absolute sense that the Christian faith is the way. It it appears as if that was a common descriptor for this emerging uh, sect of Jesus' followers. that They they were referred to as the way. It's also this language of the way or the road even. that's, That's what this same word is sometimes translated, road. Or, or even um, journey uh, in some other places, like when, like in the in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus says, "Take, uh, don't take two coats for your journey." It's the same word, the way, the road. Uh, but it's also used several times in the Book of Acts uh, in, in other ways. The way of salvation, sixteen. That's Acts sixteen seventeen. The way of the Lord, the way of God, Acts eighteen twenty five and twenty six. And, of course, as we think about not just in the book of Acts, but, again, back to Luke's gospel as well, this notion of the way or the road is a fairly prominent feature in uh, Luke's writing. So so if if you're familiar at all with the structure of the gospel of Luke, one of the key turning points in the gospel comes at the end of chapter 9 when Jesus um, turns his face like a flint to travel to Jerusalem. And so really the, 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 the bulk of Luke's narrative is Jesus on the way, on the road to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And others are, are, are sort of joining along with him on the way. Uh, and he's calling them on the way to suffering and glory. So that's really a part of Luke's broader theology is conceiving of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to join him on the way. But here in, in Acts uh, 9, it, it's interesting, even more interesting, that the, the disciples, the Christians, are, are those who are of the way. That's, an, that's another interesting layer of meaning here. It's not just that they are on the way, but they belong to the way. That they have been possessed by, laid hold of by the way. We might think here of what Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But it is interesting to me that of those three, the way, the truth, and the life, it was the first one, the way, that caught on, at least in these early years of Christianity, as a descriptor for the Christian faith. That It was referred to as the way. Now, I'm not trying to pit the three against each other. Of course, Jesus is all of them, the way, the truth, and the life. And even in the context of Acts, the way has a truth that leads to life. I mean, if you think about um, Uh, Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos and instruct him more accurately in the way of the Lord. So the way has a set of doctrines or beliefs, uh, a faithful deposit of teaching that accompanies it. It's not just about doing stuff, but it is also about believing stuff as well. But it is interesting that the the, the tenor, the tone, the, the emphasis is placed on the Christian faith as a way, as a way of walking. Um... You know, sometimes we will ask each other, uh, at least in, in certain contexts in, in evangelicalism, how's your walk with the Lord? Because, of course, that becomes a prominent theme in, in Paul's writings as well. Uh, walking in step with the Spirit. Walking on the way. How's your walk? The Christian life, again, is a journey. It's not just about standing still and checking off certain doctrinal boxes, but it's about joining Jesus on His mission. I just think that we need to re-emphasize that in churches like ours, right? Churches like ours who have a high view of doctrine, who have a high view of the Bible, who have a high view of truth and orthodoxy. Uh, a, high, a high premium is placed on believing the right things, and rightly so. Okay, I'm not. I'm not trying to say we should diminish doctrine so that we might emphasize ethics. Don't, don't misunderstand. Jesus said, I am all three, the way, the truth, and the life. But I think in our context, very often, we sometimes miss that the Christian faith is, as as, as emphasized in the New Testament, is as much of a way as it is a truth. Do, do you see the point? That Jesus is calling us to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. We, we are learners in the school of Christ, and you, we're not going to a school building, but we're joining him on the journey, we're joining him on the way. The Christian life is a way, we belong to the way. So let me just ask you that same question that often gets asked in um, college small groups. How's your walk? How is your walk? Are you walking daily with the Lord? Are you loving as he loves? Are you serving as he serves? Are you showing compassion? the way that he showed compassion. Basic Christianity is about following Christ. It's about belonging to the way. Well, Saul, for his part, is seeking out those who belong to the way so that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, both men and women. We read here in verse 3, now as he was on his way, Paul was on his way, he was walking along his road, he was headed on his way toward the destruction of more Christians. And again, I think it's, it's sometimes, um, we're so familiar with this story that it's sometimes difficult for us to, to really appreciate how wicked Saul was in what he was doing. Saul himself refers to himself as the chief of sinners, right? The, the, just think about these words from 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life." I think sometimes we might be tempted to think that's kind of an overstatement, right? Isn't, isn't this kind of hyperbole? Paul saying, I'm the worst, the foremost, the chief of sinners. But think about this for a moment. What Paul is doing here is essentially state-sponsored terrorism, right? He seeks out letters from the chief priests to go and have Christians arrested and murdered, right? If you heard a story today of, uh, let's say, a, an especially notorious member of ISIS uh, who was systematically seeking out Christians in order to bind them, take them to prison, and murder them, we would think that's a person who's pretty far from the Lord, right? That's who Saul was. At the very beginning of the Christian faith, at the very origin of this burgeoning movement, Paul is seeking to snuff it out, again, by a kind of state-sponsored terrorism. This guy is is seeking to be a serial killer, right? We sometimes get fascinated by serial killers, right? Uh, And we, we recognize this unique form of evil that... Is, is found in these who want to seek out the murder of multiple people. Well, it, well imagine that this is someone not not only who has that kind of bloodlust, but is seeking to stamp out faith in the one true God and in His Christ, who lived and died and rose again for the salvation of the world. That's who Saul was. So when he says he is the chief or the foremost of sinners, that's not just a rhetorical flourish to say, "Hey, I'm pretty bad too, guys. You can be saved too because I'm pretty bad." No, he was. And in a very real sense, the epitome of someone who is as far away from Jesus as you could imagine. He's on his way, literally, to kill more Christians. But that's when Jesus shows up and puts him on a new path. This language of the way continues throughout the passage. We read in verse 7, the men who were traveling with him. So again, this notion of of traveling, of a journey... Uh, And then in verse 8, they uh, led him by the hand. Again, there's this kind of notion of journeying on. And then as we move down to verse 11, um, this vision to Ananias, the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. That can't just be an accident, right? That's not just like an incidental. It just so happened that the place where Saul went was a place called Straight Street. Saul's way was crooked. Saul's way was, was opposed to Christ. And Jesus takes him off of that way and puts him on a straight way. I don't think that's reading too much into what's being said here. He's in a place called Straight Street. Saul found himself on a crooked path leading to destruction, but Jesus puts him on the straight path leading to life. And as we'll see in the next two points, the journey is, get, is still going to be difficult. It's not like the straight street is, is um, just whistling along and no, no troubles, no suffering. No, it's going to be difficult, and it's not going to happen all at once. It's a pilgrimage. But it begins, this way, this street called straight begins with an encounter with Jesus that radically reorients our lives. One of the things, the the main points I think I'd take away from this text, and and it's fairly obvious, that Jesus can save anyone. There's no one too far from the mercy of Jesus. I know that sounds like cliche, and that's something that we probably would all affirm, but do you really believe it? Do you really believe that Jesus can save anyone? You know, there have been some serial killers on death row who have had conversion experiences. Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, supposedly had a conversion experience in prison, became a born-again evangelical according to his testimony. How does that sit with you? I think if we're honest, most of us would say, yeah, right. Yeah, here's a guy who committed atrocities that are unthinkable. And it's convenient now that in prison he would try to get things right with the Lord or profess to be a Christian. I think most of us are scandalized by the very notion that someone like Jeffrey Dahmer could become a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know Jeffrey Dahmer's heart. I don't know the state of his heart. Maybe he was um, Maybe maybe it wasn't sincere. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not God. God will judge that. But my point is just to say the, the very notion that someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, a serial killer, could be converted by the grace of Jesus Christ is scandalous even to Christians. Because we think somebody's got to pay. Someone has to be punished for sin. Sinners must be punished. Those sinners. Not, not this sinner, Right? Those sinners have to be punished, or that notorious sinner has to be punished. Even Christians are scandalized by grace. But Jesus can take a notorious sinner, a serial killer, as it were. And in the, in the, very, the, the very act of them seeking out more to murder, Jesus reorients his life and makes him the chief of the apostles to the Gentiles. Jesus can save anyone. Jesus can take anyone, no matter what path thereon, on Jesus can take anyone and put them on straight street I wonder if we really believe that well a second uh, word I want to highlight here is the light we see that uh, back in verse 3 now as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him this made me think of Luke chapter 2 uh, the story of the shepherds at the nativity And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And in both cases, both with the shepherds and here with Saul, the light terrifies those who saw it. And in this case, in Paul's case, it blinded him. And just as the the theme of the way kind of runs throughout this story of Saul's conversion, so also the themes of light and sight are kind of a a theme that's woven throughout this text. When, When Saul first sees the light, it blinds him. Look again in verse 8. There we read, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. That line stood out to me as well. His eyes were opened, but he saw nothing. I think that's a piercing description of so many who are almost converted. Open, but blind eyes. It didn't happen all at once for Saul. Uh, his, his process of conversion kind of comes in stages. Uh, he, he has this initial encounter with Jesus, but his eyes are still blind, open but blind. And it's only when Ananias comes and lays hands on him and he receives the Holy Spirit, we read uh, later in the passage, it's something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. I have to wonder if this experience wasn't somewhere in the background of Paul's mind when he wrote to the Corinthians these words. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of Christ initially blinded Saul, but in time, in the Lord's patient and slow work, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his whole world was now lighted with the light of the gospel. The light of Christ may blind you for a while as well. It may take some time to become acclimated to the light. Like in the middle of the night when you have to wake up and go to the bathroom and you turn on the light. Or in the morning, the early morning hours. You have to adjust your eyes to the light. It takes some adjustment. But whenever we come to Christ... His light, in his light, we see light. It's only in the light of Christ that we can ever see clearly. Our eyes are opened and descaled only by an encounter with the risen Christ. And only as, as it is brought home to us by the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? In verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. It's the work of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit that opens our blind eyes. That's how you were saved. That's how everyone you know who's a Christian was saved. The light of Christ revealed by the Holy Spirit. That's how people come to see. And unless and until that happens, people will remain blind even if their eyes are open. That great... 20th century prophet Paul Simon once wrote, a man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. I think about that line often from Simon and Garfunkel's great classic, a man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. You don't have to spend too long on social media to know that that's true. Sometimes I, I, you know, I will say something on social media Uh, that I think is just utterly innocuous and benign, and no one could possibly disagree with it. And then I check my notifications the next day. (laughs) Because people see in what you say what they want to see. Isn't this the sad reality of America in the 21st century? That people can look at the same set of facts, people can look at the same data, people can look at the same events, and see something totally different. We see what we are predisposed to see. That's just the truth of human experience, I think. And unless God overcomes that blindness in our hearts, we will never see the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is kind of a, a corollary to the point, uh, the first point. If God can save anyone, as as Jesus does with Saul in this story, only Jesus can do this work. Right? Only Jesus can open blind eyes. You can't make others see. You can't even make yourself see. I think that's what we should pray for, is this new creation miracle. Did you catch that in the, the lines I read from First Corinthians earlier? That the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. In the same way that God did a creation work in the beginning, let there be light, so also he does a new creation work in our hearts. Let there be the light of Christ in our hearts. And unless this happens, no one will see. So this should make us all the more diligent to pray. To pray that Jesus will do what only he can do. If there's someone maybe you know and love that is far from Jesus, Jesus can save them, but only Jesus So pray. Pray that God would let his light shine in their hearts as well. And pray for yourself the same thing. Sometimes you may feel like you're in darkness and you can't see where you're going. I felt that way before. Like Dante at the beginning of the inferno. He says that I found myself in the middle of life in a dark wood alone where the sure way was lost. That's where we all are various points in our lives. We find ourselves in the dark, and we can't find the way. So ask Jesus to shine his light, to take off the scales of your eyes so that you can see again. Pray, as the psalmist does in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. As you read the scriptures daily, pray. Ask God. Ask the risen Christ to shine his light into your heart. Well, a third and final word that I want to focus on is the voice. Not only the way and the light, but also the voice. We see that in verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light comes first, but the light is accompanied by a voice. The glory of Christ's splendor is interpreted by Christ's word. And Jesus calls him by name, Saul. Saul. He does the same thing for Ananias as well. The first words out of Jesus' lips to Ananias are Ananias. He calls us. He calls us by name. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And again, he says it in verse 5. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul is persecuting Christians, but Jesus sees that as a persecution of himself. To persecute Christians is to persecute Christ, because Christ and his body are one. The head and the body are one. And of course, that is a a common image for the church throughout Paul's own writings, the church as the body of Christ. And I would submit to you that that's not just a metaphor. When the New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ, it's not just a kind of pious sentimentalism to say that Jesus really likes us. And it's in that sense that we are his body. No, in the eyes of God, the church and Jesus are covenantally one. This is how you become saved. is because God sees you as a member of Christ's body hidden in Christ. So that when God sees you, he sees Christ. When God sees you, he sees not a notorious sinner, but he sees the very righteousness of his son. The church and Christ are one body. In a real covenantal sense, Christ and his body are one. It's not just a a kind of sentimentality. Of course, this is exactly what Jesus says in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats? The sheep who had um, given a cup of cold water who had visited those who were in prison Jesus says as much as you did it to the least of these my brothers those who belong to Christ those who are members of the church you did it to me if you do it to the church you do it to Christ and likewise with the goats and as much as you did not do this to the least of these my brothers you did not do it to me and I, I, I I'm convicted by that every every time that I slander or gossip about, or insult another believer behind their back. Think about the ways that you are persecuting Christ by slandering his body. Now, I'm not suggesting that there is not a place for a rightful critique of the church, right? I I think it's a mistake to think that this means we can never criticize what the church does. Sometimes the church does things that are evil because the church... While the church belongs to Christ and is one body with him, the church is not Christ, right? There is a distinction that we can make because we do many things that defy the will of Christ. And so the church is not above critique, but the church does belong to Christ. So that when you insult fellow believers, you're insulting Christ. Those fellow believers, like you, are in need of Jesus' mercy daily. Sometimes I think we see in others the things that we struggle with most ourselves. That's just kind of an aside. I think that it's an interesting uh, phrase here that Jesus uses, that you're persecuting me when you persecute the church. Well, notice what Paul says in response to Jesus' question. He responds with a question of his own. Who are you, Lord? Well, that's the $20,000 question, isn't it? Who are you, Lord? But notice that it's only after Saul has been knocked off his high horse and fallen to the ground that he's compelled to ask a question like that. Sometimes we have to fall to the ground before we look up to the sky. One of my favorite depictions of the conversion of Saul is Caravaggio's conversion on the way to Damascus. I would encourage you to, to Google that one when you get home. Uh, conversion on the way to Damascus by Caravaggio. Caravaggio has several uh, paintings depicting the conversion of Saul, but this one in particular stands out to me uh, because it shows Saul um, lying on the ground sort of under his horse. Um, there's no horse mentioned in the text, but you, you imagine he was traveling. You can imagine he was traveling by horse. But he, he's, 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 he's fallen to the ground underneath his horse with his eyes closed and his hands outstretched almost in worship. It's almost as if he's receiving his conversion, receiving the light with his arms. And I've always been struck by that image because it's at this lowest point in his life when he's literally been knocked on his back that it's only then that he can reach up to heaven and receive the light. And I think the same thing is true for many of us. It's only whenever we hit rock bottom that we look up. It's only whenever we reach our lowest moments that we can begin our ascent back to God. And so it was for Saul. Well, the same voice of Jesus not only comes to Saul, but it comes to Ananias, where, as we read earlier, Ananias is told to go in and visit this man at Straight Street, a man that Ananias knew. Saul was notorious. And Saul, of course, um, was not the kind of guy you wanted to be pals with if you were a Christian. But notice what Ananias says here when Jesus addresses him. Jesus, again, addresses Ananias by name. Ananias. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord. Here's a man who's already found Jesus. He doesn't ask, who are you, Lord? But he says, here I am, Lord. This is a man who already knows the voice of the good shepherd and has followed him as his sheep. And I think it's a, a, a pattern, an example for us as well, that whenever we hear the word of Jesus, whenever we hear his voice, that we would have that same posture. Whatever it is, no matter how difficult, here I am, Lord. But then, of course, what Jesus has to say to Ananias is difficult, <laughs> as it often is, right? Uh, I want you to go to this murderer, Um, and open his eyes. And Ananias is like, well, again, I know this guy. We've heard of this guy. He was there at the martyrdom of our brother Stephen. Um, Are you sure that this is what you want me to do? And then, of course, Jesus says, yes, this is the one I'm going to use to take the gospel to kings and to the Gentiles and to the children of Israel. And yet he, too, is going to suffer many things for the sake of my name. Sometimes God calls us to minister in dangerous or uncomfortable situations. Sometimes it's literally dangerous for Christians to speak the name of Christ. And I think we ought to think often here of our own brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for the sake of the name, for the sake of the way. There are still people today who are being persecuted for belonging to the way. And we need to think of them often and pray for them often. And God may be calling some of you to dangerous places to testify to the name of Christ. I think we sometimes don't issue this call enough that God may be calling some of you to leave the comforts of family and friends and home to take the gospel to very difficult places I once heard John Piper say, I think it was Piper who said this, that the gospel will never penetrate the Muslim world with any effectiveness without many people being martyred. That's a sobering thought. There are places in the world that will never be reached for Christ unless people are willing to die, unless people are willing to risk what Ananias thought he was risking in this moment take the gospel to a hard and dangerous place. For most of us, though, God is calling us to something less dangerous than that. Right? If we think about our persecuted brothers, it sort of puts in context whatever discomfort or fears we might have in sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors here in the comforts of upstate South Carolina. Right? Um, But God may be calling you to some difficult conversations that will cost you something, it may cost you friendship. It may cost you comfort. But we ought to have the same response as Ananias to say, here I am, Lord. Just as Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. There are no Pauls without Ananias's. It's only Jesus who can save, but he uses us to do it. He used Ananias to open Saul's eyes. To give him the gift of the Holy Spirit. So will you go as well? Will you say with Ananias, here I am, Lord? At the end of the passage in verses 18 and 19, I think we see a kind of pattern of what it means to be converted to Christ. This is kind of the completion of Saul's conversion we see at the end of the passage. Um, after Ananias says, regain your sight, be filled with the Spirit, Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. That's an interesting sequence of events, right? Uh, Having heard the word from Ananias, his eyes were opened, he regained his sight, he rose, was baptized, ate food, and was strengthened. I think often in the book of Acts, when we read about eating food or breaking bread, it 's legitimate to see that, I think, as a reference to the lord 's Supper. It may not be in this case i'm not i can 't say for certain. Uh, Saul had been fasting for three days, as we read earlier in the passage, but I do think it's it 's consistent with the pattern that we see in the New Testament. This is the same way we are all brought to Christ. Our eyes are opened we 're baptized, and we eat the food of holy communion and it 's through that, through those those uh, Practices that we are strengthened. The way that God wants to strengthen you is exactly how He strengthened Saul to hear the word, have your eyes opened, to be baptized, and to eat. That's the pattern that we see of Saul's conversion here. So, if, just to close, I, I want to bring together a few points of application, kind of restating what we've already said um, throughout the message. But just three simple points of application. Number one, Pray and evangelize with confidence because Jesus can save anyone, even the chief of sinners. Pray and evangelize. Do you? Do you share the gospel? Do you pray for unbelievers? Pray and evangelize with confidence because Jesus can save anyone, even the chief of sinners. Number two, daily seek the light and voice of Christ in his word. Daily seek the light and voice of Christ in his word. I know that may sound obvious, but do you? Do you seek Jesus' light and Jesus' voice by daily meditating on Holy Scripture? If you only read one thing every day, I would encourage you to read the gospel. That may be Jarring. Maybe you might have just expected me to say the Bible. Of course, read all the Bible. I think that's that's good. But I think if I had to pick, if you have any pushback on this, let me know afterwards. I'm happy to defend my view. If I had to pick just one part of Scripture to read every day, it would be the gospel. Not because it's more inspired or more inerrant or more true, but it's by a daily encounter with what Jesus spoke like and what Jesus sounded like, and how Jesus interacted with people, and what Jesus prioritized, that I become more like him. If the Christian faith is a way that I must follow in his steps, then I need to know what, it's, what it looks like to be like Jesus. Earlier in the book of Acts, um, we read that the, the people um, perceived that the apostles had been with Jesus. you remember that? That's Acts 4.13. They perceived that they had been with Jesus. Would people say that about you? Would people say, I perceive that this one has been with Jesus? I think so often we don't don't look like Jesus. We might even be defending the truth of Jesus in our mind, but not in a way that looks like Jesus. You got to spend time with this man, with this God man, this rabbi, this messiah. You have to spend time with him daily, looking at him listening to him, seeing how he interacts with others. Christian spirituality is centered around Christ. It's through Christ that we come to know the triune God. It's through Christ that we come to know eternal life. It's through Christ that we come to know how we are to live and to conduct ourselves on the way. So center your Christian spirituality around a daily encounter with Christ by reading and meditating on the gospel. And then a final point of application, Remember that you, too, are on a journey, and journeys take time. Remember that you, too, are on a journey, and journeys take time. Even even Saul's conversion took place in parts, right? He's blinded. He doesn't quite know. He hears the voice. He goes. Then he receives this visitor, Ananias. It doesn't happen all at once. Even for a dramatic conversion like Saul's, it doesn't happen all at once. But Jesus has kind of taken his time working his way through to Paul's heart. Maybe your conversion started out in a dramatic fashion like Saul's, but maybe it didn't. In either case, what Jesus told Ananias about Saul is true for all of us. I will show him how, me, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, the Christian life is a journey, and the journey is sometimes arduous. That's why I love the allegory of the Pilgrim's Progress, Another one that I just started reading with our daughter um, is Hind's Feet in High Places. Anybody ever read that one? Hind's Feet in High Places. It's about uh, a young woman who is crippled and ugly. <laughs> um, and she is she has an encounter with the shepherd who promises to lead her to the high places. Her name is Much Afraid and the shepherd gives her a new name and implants his love in her heart. And she says to the shepherd, this is early in the book, she says to the shepherd, I can't, I can't ever imagine being afraid again. And, of course, the shepherd knows she'll be afraid again. On, the, on, the, on life's journey, Much Afraid will be Much Afraid again. And this is what we read early in the book. The shepherd knew her through and through in all the intricate labyrinth of her lonely heart, far better than she knew herself. No one understood better than he that growing into a new name is a long process. I think all of us who have been Christians for any amount of time could testify to that. Growing into our new name in Christ is a long process. So just be encouraged today, wherever you are on this journey. The journey takes uh, many twists and turns and many ups and downs. Um, And again, whether your journey started like Saul's or not, um, it's going to be long and suffering. But the journey ends in the high places. The journey ends in the celestial city. And so I'll end where I began. Have a good journey. Let's pray. Lord, help us by your grace, slowly but surely, to grow into our new name. Jesus, lead us daily as our good shepherd, and take us at last to the high places. In your name, amen.